The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Listen, we are in Revelation, and we are two weeks in to seven weeks of looking at each of the seven churches here in Revelation 2 and 3. We started with Ephesus, and uh, Ephesus, like we saw last week, we saw a church in Ephesus who patiently endured in the work. We also see a church who, who, who were, were faithfully defending the doctrine. But in Ephesus, we, we read Jesus looks at this church and says, I have this, though, you have abandoned your first love. And then right in the heart of that, Jesus then calls this church in his grace and his kindness. He calls this church to remember, to repent, and then to return to doing the things they once did. And that was the call last week. That was our call last week. And that was the first church. Now, our church this morning going to be a lot different than our first church. A lot different than our first church. And in some ways, this might make you uncomfortable. Um, I know that in some ways, this might bring up some questions that we have. As we look at this church, I think it might stir in us maybe some objections. I, I am in full awareness that what I'm about to preach is probably not going to be the most popular message um, that people are going to want to download. Um, understand that, that completely. Yet I believe more than anything else, church, that this is a message of hope. And when I say hope, I don't mean puny hope. I mean like real, lasting, true hope. I believe that this is, is that text. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to um, read our text, very short, uh, short address, shortest one. And um, from that, I'd like for us to pray, and then we'll get to work together. So Revelation we're going to be in chapter 2, verse 8. Here's what it says. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. We well, just stop there, but I won't. Um, verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray together. Lord God, you are the God of all hope. Would you guide us this morning through your word? Would you strengthen our hope? God, would you meet us where we are this morning? Would you show us, Lord, your heart for us, for your people, for your church? And God, this morning we thank you, and this morning we listen. And we give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, 
before we get to work in this text, I'd like to call something out. Can I call something out for us? It doesn't matter. I'm going to anyway. Um, I don't know why I asked that. Um, I want to call out something that I call nearsighted Christian karma. Nearsighted Christian karma. Let me give you a brief definition of what I mean. Um, nearsighted Christian karma. Don't Google it. I just literally, this is, this is my way of figuring this out. So here's what I mean when I say this. When you are good and when you are obedient and when you are faithful, God's going to bless you and things are going to go well in your life. Flip side, when you're bad, when you're not obedient, when you're a bonehead, things are not going to go well for you in your life. Now, Having said that, I know that not many of us are going to run out of the gate and say, God just wants us happy, healthy, and wealthy. Like, I, I hope, I hope, church, that if you've been with us for any amount of time, you won't say that. Um, that's prosperity gospel. It's not the gospel. It doesn't work. Not biblical. I hope that you, you feel that. But, but listen, even though not many of us would say, like, if you follow Jesus, you're going to get great jobs you're not going to get sick anymore. I hope you wouldn't say that because that's a lie. But I hope we wouldn't say that. But here's the deal. We might have more subtle versions of this going on. Uh, let me give you an example. Think back to Job and his friends. So Job, if you remember the story of Job, he has horrible things happening in his life. Just all at once, horrible. And he's sitting there in his pain with his friends. And what do his friends say repeatedly? Job, what? What is it that you did? Is there some sin that you need to get? What have you done that this would... Okay, church, that's the same thing. It's just a subtler version of nearsighted Christian karma. Just a subtler version. Let me give you another example. Let me give you the flip side, the good side. Um, you get a great promotion at work. It's fantastic. You get home and you find out your oldest daughter got a full-ride scholarship to the college of her choice. You go and you check the mail and you find out you want a car. You didn't even remember getting into that sweepstakes, but you got a car now coming. And then your wife comes in and says, honey, I've been miraculously healed from, from cancer. That's a good day. That's a good day. And I would bet if that happened to you that someone in your life, someone, someone would say, you must be doing something, right? It's the same thing. It's when, God, you're going to bless me in the here and now when I'm good, and you're not going to bless me in the here and now when I'm bad. You're going to bless me in the here and now when I am good. It's not going to go well. You're going to punish me in the here and now when I'm bad. That's That's what I call nearsighted Christian karma. And I want to be really careful here when I say this. It's just our way of setting this up. I, am, I absolutely know that there will be times when you receive consequences for your actions. Okay, so like you do a great job at work and you're rewarded. You save money and you have it when you need it later. Like that's just wisdom. That's just reaping what you've sown, in other words. Um, and on the other side, if you go and you're a horrible employee, you steal, you're going to get fired right? Um, if you don't save anything, you're not going to have it. Like, those are just consequences, and I, and I get that. That's just wisdom. But here's, here's, 
We live in a fallen and broken world. And what that means for us very practically is we, you and I, we live in a world with sin and evil. And so what that means is that there will be moments when you are faithful, when you are good, when you are obedient, and you're going to face trials. There is going to be moments when, when you do all the right things at work and the other guy gets the promotion and you get let go. In other words, in a broken world, there is often going to be moments when bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. That is, this world is not right. This is a fallen, broken world, and that's, what, that's how this works out. So what do we do with this? Two things as we build a foundation for Smyrna. Number one, what do we do with this? Well, first, we focus on what is ours to control. That is our obedience and our faithfulness we bring some shalom, some peace with us wherever we go. Why is that? Because that's ours. That's what is given to us to control. And on the other hand, we trust and know that our God is sovereign and good and that in the end, he will make things all right. We trust him. So we give over what's not ours to control and we trust the Lord with all the rest, knowing he's going to He's going to make all things right. So here's, here's my hit on nearsighted Christian karma. It almost has it. It's almost right. It just gets the timeline and the object all wrong. So, so nearsighted, where it, where it looks at the here and now, the gospel, what does it do? It lifts our eyes, lifts our eyes, focuses on what is eternal. Where, where nearsighted Christian karma looks to material things in the right now, what does the gospel do? It just raises our eyes. Look up, look up. And, and it, it reveals to us what is better. That is Jesus Christ present with us, that Jesus gives us himself. In other words, the, the true gospel lifts our eyes and shows us that Jesus is present with us in and everything that we face through the ups and through the downs, and how Jesus is better, and that in the end, Jesus will reign and win. Things will be made right. Shalom will be here. We believe this. This is what the gospel says. We know that all will be well, and so we can sing together, it is well. That's that is the gospel, the true gospel, so much better than prosperity or poverty theology. So much better. And this morning, here's the reality. We get to look at a church who's going to demonstrate this and live this out before our eyes. And I believe it's going to give us hope. We are looking at the ancient church of Smyrna. And, and no surprise here, it's located in the ancient city of Smyrna. And um, let me be clear here. This is not a poor city. It's important we know this. Not a poor city. In fact, um, Smyrna was, was, comes from the Greek word myrrh. It was, it was the chief exporter of myrrh in the ancient world. This was not a poor city, relatively affluent here. And, and here's the reality, both in our text and in history. Here's what we know. The same could not be said about the ancient church in Smyrna. In fact, Jesus says, verse 9, I know your tribulation and what? Your poverty. Don't miss this. 
there was a discrepancy here. There was a difference here between the affluent city, the city as a whole, in that the city, the community was not in poverty and the church was in poverty. Now, church, what does that tell us? That tells us it's costly here to be a Christian. Tells us here that it was costly to be associated with the church in this city. To say, I follow Jesus, to get baptized, and to say, I belong in this church, it costs you something. And you probably know this, but there are places in our world right now that that is still absolutely the case and absolutely true. It's costly. And I'm not talking about like, oh, I'm going to serve again or I'm tired or I got to get the whole family. I'm not talking about that kind of cost. What I'm talking about here is the cost was significant. It was financial. Like it's going to cost your livelihood. The cost was significant. It was going to impact your ability to work. Uh, in some cases, it was going to threaten your very lives. In this city, to follow Jesus, to belong to the church, was to choose tribulation and poverty in a relatively affluent city. And yet at the same time, Jesus is so clear. He says, although you're in poverty in the here and now, Jesus says, I know your poverty, verse 9. And then, but you are rich. What? How could that be? I, we're going to get back to that. Okay, I promise we're coming back to that. But one more thing here about this church. Um, in this time, there was a deep conflict between the church and the Roman Empire between the church and the Jewish community in this city. We see it again, verse 9, uh, after, I know your poverty, but you are rich, says, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Ouch. There was a massive disagreement and conflict between the Jewish community of this city and the church. There was persecution, there was slander, and due to the slander, the Christians, the church, were being persecuted. They were suffering economically. They were being turned into the Romans. They were being arrested. They were even losing their lives. And why? It's just because they were the people of God. They were the church. Again, it was costly. It was costly. Things were not easy for this church. They were suffering at the hands of evil people. And it's right here in this moment, church, in this text, that I wish, I wish, um, I wish it said something like, but take heart, because I'm going to bless you, I'm going to restore your financial loss sevenfold, I'm going to binge you, like, I'm here, like, I wish it, I wish it said that, I'm going to vanquish them, but you don't read that here. Instead, verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison. That you may be tested for 10 days, you will have tribulation. He goes on to say, be faithful unto death. And you will 
I will give you the crown of life. So it's not, it's not, hey, you're not going to suffer. It was, do not fear what you are about to suffer. It was not, I'm going to keep you from prison. I'm going to bring you into a season of peace, and I'm going to protect you. No, it was the devil is going to throw you into prison. It was, there will be a season of tribulation. It was, I'm calling you to be faithful unto death. That was the call. How could this be? Now, I want to pause here. How many like history? Okay. We get better at that question. I've asked it a few times, and at first it was like, no one. Now we at least have a few. Um, here's the reality. I think it's important to know here that these are not just words on a page. These are real people, a real community, a real church, and a real pastor. We happen to know their pastor. Um, we happen to know their pastor. He is known as Polycarp, Pastor Polycarp. I put his, his, uh, his mugshot there. Um, Polycarp, Bishop Polycarp. Here's the deal. That guy was a disciple of John, like the John. The one who wrote what we're reading. Like, he was the disciple of John. Um, it was actually John who discipled him and also who ordained him and placed him into his role as the pastor of this church. A lot has been written about this man. A lot. And um, some of his actual writings have survived as well. I geek out about history. I'll spare you. Um, but here's what we know. He's a faithful pastor. A faithful pastor to his very end. In fact, um, for no other crime, but for not burning incense in worship to the emperor, uh, of the Roman emperor, for refusing to worship the emperor, Pastor Polycarp was arrested and ordered to be executed. He was ordered, actually, to be burned at the stake. By the way, I get this picture, if you remember in Daniel, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're about to be burned, or so, you know, was the plan. Um, but they were approaching their potential death by burning, and I remember, I looked back at this story, and their words just struck me. He, he, they, they stand before the king, and as you throw us into fire, they're very clear that they say, God, our God who is able to deliver us, is able to deliver us from the burning furnace, he will deliver us from your hand, O king. That's pretty cool. But it's the second thing they said that just wrecked me. The very next thing. But if not, Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. That's Polycarp. But if not, as he faced his death, I have a, a few quotes that I'd like to share with you. He says this, um, 86 years I have served him. That's, that's our savior. That's Jesus. And he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my, my king and savior? Listen to this. You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season. And after a while is quenched. 
but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. That's called a mic drop. They didn't have those back then, but... (laughs) Then he says, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. This is faithful unto death. This is looking toward the crown of life. Pastor Polycarp was faithful to the very end. He was burned at the stake. Um, We read in history that this moment he's being burned, but the fire is not consuming him, and it frustrates them. And so actually his death was caused by a soldier who who stabbed him. That was how he died, because the fire was not doing the job. And through it all, he's faithful to the very end. Jesus says, I know your tribulation. Jesus says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison. You're going to be tested, tribulation, be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. Jesus knew what was coming for this church. He knew. He knew what was coming for this church. He knew the years of persecution that they were going to face. And it wasn't because they had done something wrong to deserve it. In fact, they got it because they were faithful to Jesus. Like, they would face years of persecution. Jesus says, uh, for 10 days, you will have tribulation. So I want to dig into this for a little bit because we understand these days to represent kind of seasons for this church, uh, time periods of trial and persecution they were going to face. In fact, some even see this as the 10 upcoming emperors that they were going to have to go through and endure. Now, this was going to be a season And yet, and yet, through it all, here's the powerful truths that we see in this. The powerful truths that we see in this for them and for us. Here's what we see. Truth number one, the tribulation is temporary. Ten days, you're going to have tribulation. However you define those ten days, however long that is, don't miss this. That means that suffering is not eternal. That means that suffering has a termination date. That means it is limited. It's exactly what our man, Pastor Polycarp, said as he faced his death. He says, you threaten me with a fire that burns for a season. The tribulation is temporary. I want you to hear me. The enemy wants nothing more than for you and I to be so nearsighted, so focused on the here and on the now, to get so focused in that we would trade our thoughts for eternity, for our fears for today. That we would not see that that though the trials may last for the night, joy comes in the morning. In fact, truth number two. The tribulation is temporary, but the joy of God is eternal. Eternal. As a children of God, ours is eternity. That's ours. 
the trials we face, listen, I don't in no way want to downplay them. They are real. They are heavy. But the trials we face are not eternal. They have an end date. They will not last forever. You, you may, you will, we will encounter trials of various kinds, but church, they do not last forever, and we are promised life abundantly and eternally through Jesus Christ. That is ours. That is ours. And, and we can get so nearsighted, narrow-focused, narrow-focused, and sometimes I think what needs to happen is that the gospel just needs to penetrate that and, and just expand our view and remind us to stop being so nearsighted, to look up. Jesus says, I'm going to give you a crown of life. And guess what? That crown is not limited to 10 days. Trials, that's 10 days. The crown, that's everlasting. And ha- here's the great exchange that we see in this church. We see a church here, temporary suffering will be overcome by eternal joy and pleasure. Amen. And how foolish for us to want it the other way around. For us to want to choose temporary pleasure for eternal suffering. This is exactly what Polycarp points out. You threaten me with a fire that's going to go out in a season but you're ignorant, he says, of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. We talked about the prosperity gospel earlier. You know I don't love it. Um, This puny rendition of the gospel, it promises finite riches today, but the true gospel is so much better because it's in everything that we face, in everything, through everything we face. We get Jesus today and forever. That is the gospel. It's not your best life today or now. Praise God for that, church. Praise God for that. Your best life is hidden with Christ forever. That is your best life. Praise God that this fallen world in all of its brokenness and sin is not the best. Don't believe a gospel that tells you otherwise. Don't, don't. Jesus' words here in Revelation 2 remind me so much of James and James 1. Actually, actually, our man, Pastor Polycarp, reminds me of the words of James 1 that says in James 1:12, blesses the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let me add a word. I know you're not supposed to do that to scripture, but follow me. Blessed is the man who remains steady under temporary trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the eternal crown of life. I want us to go back to the whole nearsighted Christian karma idea again because these two truths, the fact that the tribulation is temporary and the joy of God is eternal, they speak directly to our nearsighted tendencies. 
And I want to say this again. Um, you have an enemy. You do. And he wants you, he would want nothing more than for you to be nearsighted. To only see the temporary, to only care for the temporary. The enemy does not want you to be able to lift your eyes and to understand there's more than just that. The enemy does not want you to understand that Jesus with you and is present with you through anything and everything you face, that he is enough that he is better, that he has given you eternity that extends beyond all of this and that nothing and no one can ever, 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 ever take it away. He does not want you to see that. I want to go back to verse 9. He says, I know your, your um, tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Can I talk about that? But we are rich. Church, that can only be understood in light of eternity. It's the only way to think about it. The only way. Listen, I, I don't know if you know this or if you realize this, how prevalent this is, but Jesus' heart is for the broken, the poor and the broken. Just read, pick up the New Testament for the meek. His heart is for the poor. Scripture is so clear that our God exalts the humble and humbles the proud. You see it all throughout Scripture. We see in Scripture that the kingdom of God is not for those who can buy their way in. Through things, power, popularity, the kingdom of God is not for them. In fact, um, I'm reminded of Jesus' most famous sermon, the way he starts his most famous sermon, Sermon on the Mount. Um, he starts, if you remember, he starts with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they're going to be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they're going to inherit the earth. If we move down, can we read this with, with this church, this church in Smyrna in our minds? Blessed are those who are persecuted. For righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Listen to this. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's our church. That's Smyrna. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Eternal, my word. So, for, so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Church, it's like Jesus is speaking directly to our church here. He's speaking direct, directly to them and saying, blessed are the poor, blessed are you when you are mourning, blessed are you when you're persecuted, blessed are you when they slander you, blessed are you when they talk all kinds of evil about you because of me. You are blessed. And Why? That's not some mythical blessing, some pie-in-the-sky blessing. Jesus here is talking about true blessing, eternal blessing that nothing and no one, no moth, no rust can take away. That's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is looking at this church, and he's saying, you are blessed. You are blessed because you get the riches of eternity. 
You are blessed. Hear me. Here is the hope that I want us to cling to this morning in this text. Whatever you and I face, whatever you and I are about to face, whatever it is, Christ will overcome. His grace is sufficient. He has promised that in him you will be blessed. That's his promise to you as his child. Though the trial may be great, he will be greater. And you will experience the power and the grace of God in ways that do not make sense. As scripture says, the peace that surpasses all understanding, that is yours. He is enough. No matter what you face, he is enough. And I know, I know, and I've heard so many stories of those who have gone through sickness, trials, suffering that I can't even relate to. And I have heard it over and over again, testimony after testimony, that it is in those moments that they experience Christ in a way that they can't explain. Have you ever heard someone try to share a testimony when they just can't explain it? It's awesome. And that is our hope and our promise. Jesus is in this world. You will face trials. But take heart because I've overcome them. I have overcome. And testimony after testimony reveal how Jesus overcomes. To be truly rich is to have Jesus. To be truly rich. That is wealth. Tribulation is temporary. The joy of God is eternal. Listen, we're looking at seven churches, right? Of the seven, there are only two churches that Jesus does not rebuke. We have Philadelphia in chapter three. We'll get to them later. And we have the church of Smyrna here in our text. There's no rebuke here. There's only comfort. And right in the midst of it, Jesus gives this command. This, there's two imperatives in our verse. And they both happen to be in verse 10. In verse 10, you're going to see it right here. First, do not fear. Imperative number one. Imperative number two, be faithful. Do not fear, be faithful. Do not fear, be faithful. Fear and anxiety, let me tell you, they're difficult and funny little things. What I mean by that is I don't, I've never met anyone who cured anxiety by going, stop it. Just stop it. Stop it. Stop it. I've never met anyone who's been able to cure anxiety that way, ever. Because the remedy for fear is not stop it, stop it, stop. That's not the remedy for fear. What's the remedy for fear? The remedy for fear, according to scripture, is faith. Faith in Christ, that he's going to do what he promised to do. The remedy for fear is that faith that he will provide for you and hold you and keep you. That's the remedy for fear. Do you believe it? Do you? Let me push this a little more, a little deeper. Um, scripture, according, according to scripture, the literal remedy for fear, we can read... Um, is resting, believing in the perfect love that God has for you demonstrated through Jesus Christ. In fact, 1 John 4, 18 says, there is no fear in love. But perfect love 
casts out fear. Faith in the perfect love of our God casts out fear. That is the remedy for fear. Jesus speaking directly to the churches, do not fear. Why? Because I care for you and I love you. Trust me. Trust me. You are loved. Keep your eyes on me. The trials are temporary, but he is eternal. Keep your eyes, church, fixed. Listen, um, I know that today, church, right now, today, fear is rampant. It is all around us, and uh, I don't care who you are. I know you're dealing with it. We see it. We feel it. It impacts us to be in a community of fear. And that's our home right now. It's all, it's all around us. There is so much to fear all around us. Um, honestly, fear is everything. It sells. It gets more clicks. And so it gets more spread. And it's just there. And it's everywhere. It's fear. Fear is everywhere. It can be overwhelming. I, I want us to listen, though. As Jesus' church, as the people of God, no matter what we face, no matter the trials that we face, no matter how great, how dire, no matter what, ours is not fear. Ours is not fear. We walk in wisdom, not fear. We walk in peace, shalom, not fear. Fear. We walk in prayer, not fear. We, as the people of God, should be the calming balm of peace and shalom in our community. Not because we are fearless, but we have faith in Jesus. In perfect love. It casts out all fear. Sometimes I think we get so wrapped up in the temporary things that we forget, wait, I don't have to carry that. That might be the most profound thing you hear all morning. Wait a second, I don't have to carry that. I don't, I can put that down. I, I, I think of first, or 2 Timothy 1.7, God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Fear is not yours to lug around. It's not yours to keep. In fact, listen to this, 1 Peter 5, 7. I know I'm bouncing, but I, I'm just, yes. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. And perfect love casts out all fear. Cast your anxieties on him. So he's not given it to you to carry. You don't have to carry it. More than that, he has invited you to bring it to him. He's invited you to bring it to him because he loves you. And that's where fear dies. Because he loves you. This morning, um, I feel like I could talk a long time. I'm not. Um, I do want, though, to read a scripture over us as God's people in a community of fear. Our persecution is not like this church's. But we face fear all, all the same. And so I want to read this 
text over us as just God's people. And whatever you face, whatever you're about to face, these are the word, words of God to us, his people. And I just want them to sit on our shoulders and, and to maybe put down the fear and let this sit. Because his yoke is easy. His burden is light. Let me read this over us this morning. Would you, just in this moment, um, would you just, right where you are, just bow your heads. Let's, let's close our eyes. This is John 14, 26 through 27. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives peace do I give to you. Church, listen. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Thank you.